Welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazzara. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice here at our supporting sponsor, UTSU's Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. Uh, it's a um, pretty nice November 9th, 2023, and I'm going to talk today about some updates in hematology and some of the uh, some of the challenges in doing uh, you know useful, meaningful research studies uh, in in aggressive disease states. So we're going to start first with. Um, Actually, first we're going to start with uh, a paper from, I think, two weeks ago published in Lancet Hematology, R-Codox-M, altering with R-IVAC versus dose-adjusted R-EPOC in newly diagnosed Burkitt lymphoma, uh, a phase three open-label randomized control study. So our, our favorite guidelines kind of list three different chemo options for, for Burkitt lymphoma, and Burkitt lymphoma is the very aggressive non-Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, that is most common. Uh, you would expect these patients to have KI-67 of close to 100%. Uh, more often than, than not, uh, the, the median age diagnosis for these patients is going to be in their 20s. Uh, and it's a very aggressive disease, uh, almost like, a, a, you know, almost like a, an acute leukemia as far as, as doubling time. A very chemosensitive and uh, pretty good cure rates long term, but, but, uh, but they're very sick and they can die pretty quickly. So they need to be started on treatment fairly emergently. One of the only times in my career I've seen um, an oncologist or hematologist um, start chemotherapy before tissue diagnosis outside of the APL setting was a, a young patient who we knew had an aggressive B-cell lymphoma and the question was do we treat it like diffuse large B-cell lymphoma like RCHOP or treat it more aggressively like we do for Burkitt lymphoma um, because pathology was waiting a while and the patient was going downhill you know, hour by hour, and, and the decision was made to, to, to treat like Burkitt lymphoma with a hyper-CVAD regimen. So this is not a hyper-CVAD study, but this is Codox M slash MVAC, which is a recommendation for those high-risk patients for, uh, for Burkitt lymphoma, which would be anything at stage 2 or, or worse, or stage 1 if you have an abdominal mass, which is pretty common presenting sign and location of disease for Burkitt lymphoma, or a 10-centimeter mass, um, you do hyper-CVAD, uh, alternating with high-dose methotrexate, high-dose uh, cytarabine, which is the high perceived regimen, or dose of just our epoch. So this is comparing uh, our codox M uh, versus uh, and our IVAC versus dose adjusted epoch. Now, uh, codox M and, and IVAC is not a regimen that I have ever used. So just so everyone knows, I'll read these out. This will be a little tedious. Uh, you can look these up in chemo references. But our codox M is it's an alternating regimen. It's very similar to high perceived uh, rituximab. Conventional dose 375 per meter squared on days one and nine, cyclophosphamide 800 per meter squared on day one, and then cyclophosphamide 200 per day on days two to five, vincristine 1.5 milligrams per meter squared on days one and eight, doxorubicin 40 milligrams per meter squared on day one, and methotrexate 3 grams per meter squared on day 10. So very similar to hyper-CVAD in that you're getting multiple days of cyclophosphamide, you're getting one dose of doxorubicin at a, at a normal dose-ish, you're getting uh, two doses of vincristine. Um, now you're you're getting uh, methotrexate with that with that cycle, and then you're alternating that with IVAC or our IVAC, which is again two doses of rituximab, three seventy five uh, per meter squared on days three and seven. Ifosamide one point five grams per meter squared on days one through five. Etoposide sixty per meter squared days one through five, and then two grams per meter squared of cytarabine on days one and two. Um, so so no corticosteroid uh, in that regimen, except for what you might give for. Um, for condi for uh, for antiemetics, but at least that codox part certainly looks a lot like hyper-CVAD, but there are some differences with the inclusion 
of iphosphamide and etoposide, but you're getting high-dose cytarabine, high-dose methotrexate, um, at least one of those with each cycle. And then doses-adjusted our epoch, uh, at least devoted listeners of the podcast are familiar with that uh, episode from the past where you're, you're, uh, you're giving etoposide, prednisone, vincristine, cyclophosphamide, um, and vincristine, and you are adjusting up usually the dose of doxorubicin, etoposide, and cyclophosphamide, the mild suppressive agents, based on, on counts. So anyway, this, this um, let's talk a little bit more about this. This was done in um, 26 centers in the Netherlands, Belgium, and Switzerland. They don't call themselves this, but they could, they could call themselves the Chocolate Leukemia Consortium or Chocolate Lymphoma Consortium. Now, they are diagnosing Burkitt based on local pathology diagnosis. They're not necessarily looking for, they don't say they're looking for, for MIC rearrangement necessarily or starry sky appearance. They're saying local pathology diagnosis. No central pathology, which is often kind of a hallmark that you see in, in these leukemia or lymphoma group studies. This study was, um, so they're getting two cycles, sorry, they're, getting, they're randomized to two cycles of Codoxim slash IVAC. And I would assume that's actually four cycles of chemo. So you, one cycle's Codoxim, and then you alternate that with IVAC for one cycle. So four cycles of chemo or six cycles of dose to adjust our EPOC. So EPOC, you're going to get, you know, probably a longer duration of, of chemo. Um, skipping to the, the statistical analysis, this is really important here. So they... Uh, we're looking to see a two-year increase in progression-free survival from CODOX, IVAC, um, to 85%, from 7% to 85% with dose-adjust-R epoch, so an 80% power to detect a 15% improvement in two-year PFS rate. It has a ratio of 0.46, they're saying, and they need 250 patients, okay? Now, as I mentioned, this is a disease that's very, very rapid and can kill people pretty quickly, uh, and you start treatment very urgently. Uh, which means sometimes, conceivably, there's not going to be time or even the willingness to go through the informed consent process. This is also not that common of a disease. Um, now, these patients were enrolled between 2014 and 2021. Their sample size calculation was for 250 patients. 89 were enrolled. Then this illustrates the challenge of trying to do good clinical studies, uh, good clinical trials in really aggressive disease. Um, and, and rare diseases. Um, and we sort of see this, I think, in that the median age of diagnosis in this study is 50 and 56 years, respectively. That's much older than you typically see uh, with Burkitt lymph traditional Burkitt lymphoma. 12%, uh, 10% were HIV-associated in each arm. Um, so those very, very aggressive folks, probably in their 20s, are going straight to treatment and, and are not included in this study. And you're, you're enrolling some of these older folks that at the time in 2014, we were just learning about double hit. And my guess is perhaps some of these patients with Burkitt lymphoma were called Burkitt-like back then because they didn't fit the traditional profile of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, but also didn't fit the classical diagnosis of Burkitt lymphoma. And we saw these folks around this time called Burkitt-like. Now, this is 2023. They started enrolling patients in 2014. It was published this year in Lancet Hematology. We don't see, it's a very underpowered study. Um, and I, I give the authors and the investigators credit for attempting this. I will say, you know, progression-free survival, overall survival, disease-specific survival, can't take much of the cat microbes. They overlap. I wish that they had, like, the air bars that you see in some in some cat markers because with only about 40 pages on each arm, you're going to see, you know, quite a bit of, of overlap here. Um, interestingly, they do have a, you know, comparison uh, between 
some of the notable endpoints here, so a lot more patients required platelet transfusion and codox IVAC, uh, as well as red blood cell transfusion, a lot more filgrastim use and dose-adjusted REPOC because uh, you're giving it until cat recovery here. Uh, back then, um, longer hospital stays for codox IVAC compared to dose-adjusted EPOC. Um, so certainly nothing that is, is changing practice. Um, you know, just just our EPOC or hyper-CBAT is probably what most people do here uh, in the United States. Uh, for Burkitt lymphoma, um, uh, there is, you know, some, some mention of the guidelines. If patients do have CNS disease at baseline, you, you know, you might not do uh, the hyper-CVAD first, you might do the high-dose methotrexate, high-dose cytarabine initially to get some CNS control, uh, for example, um, and, and your Codoxim or IVAC is going to have high-dose methotrexate or high-dose cytarabine, so you'll get some of that with your, your first cycle as well. But, um, but I'd mention this just because it came out, it's notable, and folks who are doing Codox IVAC, they might say this gives, you know, if that was their standard of care, they may say, well, this tells us EPOC-R can be a standard of care. Uh, you know, it's very underpowered to, to say anything, um, but certainly nothing suggests that that dose-adjusted EPOC is inferior here. But this is the challenge of practicing in this space, is that we often don't have perfect studies, and we are trying to do our best to, to visualize the picture when all the puzzle pieces are not there, and they're not coming, and they're not going to be found. And so you have to do your best uh, for the patient using... Um, you know, less than ideal information oftentimes. And that brings us to uh, this uh, this week uh, in Lancet Hematology, 10-day decidabine versus, um, it's a European study, so they call it 3 plus 7, but 7 plus 3 chemo, uh, followed by allografting, allogeneic stem cell transplant, older patients with AML-controlled phase 3 study. Very ambitious study design. So this is 10-day decidabine, a lot of hype about what people call DAC-10, 10-day decidabine, Going back to this New England Journal of Medicine publication from, I want to say it was like 2016 that this came out. Yes, 2016, it was, um, you know, a single arm study, a small number of patients that had TP53. And, and what they found is, you know, TP53, which is our body's main tumor suppressor gene, if that's inactivated, these folks have a dismal prognosis, you know, whether it's CLL, AML, etc. Um, and 10-day uh, decidabine it seemed to work better than, than they thought. And in fact, in, in patients who had TP53, 21 of 21 had a complete response. And so everyone thought this is going to be great for these patients. Now there was a smaller phase two study of DAC10 versus DAC5. This is 20 milligrams per square per day of decidabine for 10 days or five days of a 20-day cycle. No difference in complete response, complete remission rates between those arms. Um, so um, this is a similar, uh, maybe, um, uh, you know, this study kind of rhymed with the, the Burkitt lymphoma study that we're just going to talk about here. Um, interesting, the authors, uh, this, this makes sense to me. I don't know that I'd seen this in print before, but uh, in the background they say, you know, quote, although repeated hypomethylene agent decidabine treatment extends the median overall survival of older patients with AML, the regimen is ultimately not curative. I think I, I agree with that. So they're enrolling patients 60 years or over de novo or secondary um, AML either to decidabine, uh, 20 milligrams per square per day for 10 days, um, or three plus seven, they're doing donorubicin 60 milligrams per meter squared, cytarabine 200 per meter squared for the seven days, followed by one to three cycles of additional chemo, uh, and the decidabine group, could they would go on to get multiple cycles of decidabine, and then patients were encouraged to get allotransplants regardless of 
favorable intermediate or unfavorable risk type. Um, the primary endpoint is overall survival, which is a no-brainer in elderly AML. That's exactly what you should study. It's the endpoint that matters most. It's an endpoint that you're going to see because these patients have a, a poor prognosis. Um, so kudos to them for, for doing that. Median age of diagnosis here, or sorry, um, they're looking at an 85% power to look at the superiority using a one-sided alpha of 0 0.025. It's the same as a two-sided alpha, 0 0.05. Um, no problem there. Um, median age here is 67 and 68. Uh, a third of the patients were over the age of, of 70, 70 or older. 25 and 17% respectively had favorable risk. A little surprised to see that number that high in a patient over 60. 30 and 35% had adverse um, uh, risk type of, of AML. Um, I do want to mention that the, um, the safety monitoring board did an interim analysis where they saw that, you know, the, the point here was, is decidabine better than 7 plus 3? And that was their power calculation was, we're going to see if decidabine has, is better by a hazard ratio of 0.75. So just to, to oversimplify, 25% better than 7 plus 3 for overall survival over time. Uh, their interim uh, analysis said there's no way that decidabine will be shown to be superior because the hazard ratio at that time was 1.02, Cobbsville 0.3 to 0.31. Even if every single person is cured with decidabine, everyone dies at this point with 3 plus 7, it's still not going to be statistically significant. But they said to continue the study, they recommended to continue the study, the, the safety monitoring board, because, um, quote, the risks and benefits for the patients participating in the study. Uh, because the death rate, and they said the death rate was much lower than expected. So decidabine was doing pretty well. So they said, okay, we'll just we'll keep doing it, even though we know decidabine is not going to be better. And in the end, it wasn't worse. Um, and I, I think that's probably what they're saying there. Now, here is you know the challenge of doing a study like this. Uh, they're looking at, you know, is this better by 25%? That's a relatively small effect size which means you need to enroll a lot of patients. So they're actually saying that we need 441 deaths. So they're enrolling over 600 patients here in the study. And between 2014 and 2019, they, they, they enroll 600 patients. Now, at the time of the study, when this was designed, we, we weren't yet in the era we are where we've actually had somewhat of an explosion by historical standards and new treatments for AML. For years and years and years, and years for decades and decades and decades, a better way to put it, it's been seven plus three. And then we get hypomethylene agents, and, and they're helpful because they're better tolerated in the elderly patients. Uh, but really, around this time in 19, or in 2014, where they're in opening the study, we get IDH1 and IDH2 inhibitors. We get venetoclax. We get FLT3 inhibitors starting before then. Um, and all that is gonna impact you know, this post-remission therapy potentially maintenance therapy, like our good friends at Wolverine uh, Happy Hour have talked about recently. And all that stuff's really tough to account for here. And it's going to maybe muddy the waters for overall survival. And you, you, you just have to trust that if the randomization process is appropriate, that there are equal percentages of, of, of you know, IDH1 inhibitors used for IDH1 positive disease in both arms. And you kind of have to trust that here. Um, now, these folks were given a meeting of three cycles of decidabine and two of 7 plus 3, um, 40% and 40% in both arms went on to receive transplant. So we are able to get these folks uh, to transplant with, with this 10-day decidabine regimen. The median time to transplant was a little bit longer, 4.2 months with decidabine versus 3.5 uh, with, um, uh, with 7 plus 3. 
Um, their, their final analysis is after 423 deaths, which is below their 441, so slightly underpowered. Again, what you're going to see a lot of times with these aggressive hematologic malignancy studies, AML, uh, Burkitt lymphoma, tough to get these folks. The take-home point here, four-year overall survival is 26% with decidabine and 30% with, with 3 plus 7, hazard ratio of, you know, of, of 1.4 and, and a 0.86 to, to 1.26, 95% console. Again, it's not going to show statistically significant benefit, but trends in favor there of, of 3 plus 7, as you might expect. Um, now, these folks are going to be somewhat um, selected for fitness, obviously. Um, and if you look at the Kaplan-Meier curves here, you can see that 3 plus 7 is, is winning by a nose, to use a horse race analogy, most of the time. And we see about... A, from year three, two to year three to year four, about a three or four percent absolute improvement year by year in, in overall survival here. Um, you know, 26 percent of people alive four years later and 30 percent is pretty impressive for elderly AML, to be honest with you. Now, these are folks who are going on to get transplant in, 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 in 35 to 40 percent of the cases. Um, the, you do see some, I think, some interesting things in uh, when you look a little bit closer here. I mentioned that you know, there's a lot of variables that change with regards to who is able to get transplant, what type of transplant, was it a match-related donor, was it mismatched unrelated donor, um, um, did, were they able to get FLT3 inhibitor maintenance, if they're FLT3 inhibitor positive. There are a lot of things that, that can maybe muddy the waters for overall survival, despite that being the best endpoint to use here. Uh, so if you look at maybe the cleanest endpoint, it would be, you know, complete remission or CRA, because that's only going to be affected by our, our initial treatment here. So the CR, or, or complete remission with incomplete count recovery, um, was 48% uh, in decidabine and 61% with 3 plus 7. So much higher complete response rate there uh, with, um, uh, with, with 7 plus 3. As you might expect, it's a little bit more intense regimen. Uh, now, what's interesting here, if you look at this subgroup by age, I think there really is something here to these subgroup analyses when you look at the age, which I'll talk about when I get to the forest plot. But, you know, the, the CR or CRI rate was 48% in decidabine versus 76%. So 48 versus 76, that's like almost a 30% difference in complete response rate in those that were young in the study, 60 to 64, right? So the younger patients had a much higher rate of CR if they got 3 plus 7 than if they got decidabine. Now, my, that could be that they can tolerate it better. That could be they're more likely to have favorable risk genetics when they're younger. Don't know. The other end of the spectrum, let's look at the unfavorable risk. Um, the, you know, you're looking at um, the complete response rates are, are much closer there. You know, um, with uh, 43, sorry, it was 44% and 43% in those that have unfavorable risk, very similar. And if we look at our subgroup analyses, now these are gonna be hypothesis generating. However, I like to look for trends that kind of make sense. And so if we look at our age groups, 60 to 64, one group, 65 to 69, another group, and greater than 70, a different group. We see that our hazard ratio for the younger patients is 1.34, favoring 3 plus 7, then 1.14, then 0 0.84 in the oldest group. So you see a clear trend in that the older you are, it appeared that decidabine was the better treatment option than if you were younger. And there is, it's almost linear, and you can see there's a clear trend this way. Now these are ratios. So if 50% of people die divided by 50% of people in each arm, then that hazard ratio uh, is going to be 1. 
and if 25% of people die divided by 25%, the hazard ratio is one, okay? That doesn't mean that if you're over the age of 70, you do better with decidabine than younger people getting seven plus three. We're in ratio world here. So you have these elderly, these elder, these older folks, you know, you do see that decidabine appears to be more favorable. Um, when we look at our, our um, the, the risk group, we see a similar trend. Our fable risk folks have a hazard ratio of 1.56 favoring seven plus three. It is 1.18, closer to one in the intermediate risk. And then the adverse risk, it is 0.9, slightly favoring decidamine. So we see a very similar trend here where the folks that are older and have complex cyanogenetics or unfavorable risk are, are less likely to be cured and probably benefit more from a less intensive treatment regimen. And we do see in, in uh, uh, the, the breakdown of the, our consort diagram that a lot more people receiving 7 plus 3 stop treatment due to toxicity than with decidabine. That bears out in our, um, in our, um, uh, in the toxicity um, tables that you see here. You know, at the end of the day, this doesn't necessarily change a whole lot of therapy because we already know that the standard of care for these folks is going to be HMA and VEN if they're not fit for 7 plus 3. Um, and again, that further illustrates the point I'm trying to make here is these really well done studies in malignant hematology, when, when things change fast, when you do a good study and you're looking at overall survival and you're taking time to see for your overall survival, by the time that study is published, your control group uh, or your, even your experimental group is no longer the, the appropriate uh, question to be asked. And now we're trying to make sense of, of, of good data but from an older era that doesn't apply to our patients today and trying to figure out what to do with that. So I think maybe we can take from this uh, further evidence that for older patients, we feel better and better. Perhaps even some of these folks that are on the edge of being fit and defining fit for seven plus three is I think um, something that's not well described. And I think is the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And if you have someone that is, that is elderly over the age of 60 and they're potentially fit. Like you could call, you could justify that they're fit enough for three plus seven, especially the older they are, the better you feel about doing an HMA based regimen in hopes of getting them to transplant, which could be cured if you're seeing 26% of these folks a quarter are alive four years later, which is pretty impressive for elderly AML. Um, and that number's higher with, with three plus seven. I'll also point out they, they gave up to three cycles of, of three plus seven, you know, 60, of, of anthracycline, um, of donorubicin times three, times three, adds up there, uh, the, the amount of anthracycline, and that's a little worrisome as well. Um, thank you so much for, for listening. Um, and, and, and again, uh, sorry, I wanted to say uh, before I sign off, how, how different it sometimes is analyzing these aggressive malignant heme studies because by the nature of the disease, it's hard to, get, it's hard to do these studies. It's hard to enroll patients quickly enough that your results are still pertinent when they're published, which is quite different from, you know, breast cancer and prostate cancer studies, which are very, very common diagnoses and therefore much easier to enroll patients on the study in a, in a fast amount of time. And many of those studies are looking at surrogate endpoints like, like progression-free survival and not overall survival, so they're able to be reported sooner where your experimental arm is more likely to be the right question to ask, and the control arm is more likely to still be the appropriate control arm, assuming they designed a study well in the first place. So some of the some of the differences there between how we um, 
and we have to to deal with the the data that we have available to us uh, and using our thinking has to do what's best for our patients so thank you for listening you can follow me on the app formerly known as twitter at farmdeedib and you can follow me uh, and the podcast on X, Threads, Instagram, at Pod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Mm-hmm.